Uh, if you're new with us, we're spending our fall looking at some of the questions that Jesus asked us. He came asking questions, which is uh, just a source of constant fascination for me. And this morning's question comes right in the middle of, you know, probably Jesus's most famous or most well-known sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon begins in Matthew chapter 5 and extends all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And uh, the sermon itself really centers on what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom. Uh, That's the idea. Some people have called it uh, a foundational uh, teaching on Christian ethics Uh, Others have called it an exposition on kingdom living, and and all those things are true. Um, But it can be kind of reducing the point a little bit. What what this is about is what should a life look like when one is convinced deep in their gut that they live uh, under the constant unbroken affection of a heavenly father, and they have a savior who has given up everything. To win them back to himself. What, how should that reality, which shapes our identity, how should that manifest itself in what our lives look like? And so Jesus, in the sermon, goes through a lot of different ways that should take shape in our lives. He calls us to be a forgiving people. He calls us to be a very generous people. How does, it, how does this reality affect how we understand our time and our money? And of course, how does this reality affect how we think when we think about our future? And the things we're prone to worry over. And that's the context where Jesus asked the question, who among you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's what we're talking about this morning. Let's look together. This is Matthew 6. I'm going to read verses 25 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor weep, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why... Are you anxious about clothing? Consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, would you speak your love over us, this affection that you're calling us to trust? And would you help me, your servant, to speak it well to your people, 
and uh, to honor you with the words that I say. Uh, I ask these things. I ask for your help in this sensitive subject, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me take you on a little journey. It's a journey I myself went on this past week. I am calling it the journey of two articles. One article read, uh, one article read right after the other one, okay? So here's the first article. It was written, it's in the Harvard Business, if you want either of these articles, just email me, I can send you a link. But the first one's out of the Harvard Business Review. It was written by a clinical psychologist who is an associate professor at the University of Virginia, she, uh, she practices out of UVA Hospital. Uh, really helpful article about this tendency, she says, that we all have to catastrophize. That's the word she used, catastrophizing. And she defined it as the most common reaction we have to uncertain situations. So the more uncertain Our world is the more likely we are to catastrophize. And she offers a lot of good advice. As a clinical psychologist, she says this is common to everyone, uh, this tendency to do it, and, and had some advice to offer. And number one of her advice, which I thought was very helpful, was to stop time traveling. That's what she said. Stop time traveling. Stop it. Stop looking forward and imagining the worst. Learn to stay in the present. You don't know what your future holds. Stay in the presence. Uh, stop doing that. And uh, that, was, that was her first bit of advice. And I thought it was really good advice. I, uh, I, I really appreciated it. It sounds to me a lot like what Jesus is saying here in the last verse. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Um, so good advice. Heard it. Received it. Thought it was good. Grateful for it. I give it to you. That was article number one. Less than a minute later, I start reading an article published by a very prominent newspaper that read this. It seems like mosquitoes are winning. (laughs) Listen, I I can't tell you how much I hate mosquitoes, okay? I think they are the enemy. They pretty much enjoy your misery, okay? Uh, Some people are bothered, like my dad, I, I could be eaten up with mosquitoes and my dad would be right next to me and wouldn't get bit. So it doesn't bother him as much. But, uh, but they're dirty, filthy things and I hate them. And here is an article that is saying that uh, the population of mosquitoes in the world seems to be growing. And that not only that, they are actually adapting to most mosquito prevention techniques like sprays and nets. They're finding their way around. And, uh, and it's a global health crisis, and nobody cares about it. Now, what happened? In, in less than a few minutes, I went from hearing good advice to stop time traveling and then started to imagine a world that was ruled by mosquitoes. <laughs> where mosquitoes move like clouds in the sky. That's what anxiety does, right? There are times when the advice to stop is really good advice. Stop doing that. Stop pulling your sister's hair, right? Stop it. But when it comes to anxiety... Stop being anxious can just feel really unhelpful. I don't know anybody that wants to be anxious. 
I, I think every single one of us, if we could get rid of it and stop being anxious ourselves, we would, right? And yet in this passage, we see Jesus mentioned three times. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. Do not, do not, do not be anxious. Boy, it can really feel like Jesus is just saying stop, isn't he? Doesn't it? I think when you look at this text, he's actually doing much more. And what what he's doing for us in this teaching is actually so much more profoundly helpful than just telling us to stop. He is calling us to lay our anxieties down. But what is, well, here's the flow of his argument. He is first naming for us what anxiety is. Uh, and then what he does is he reasons with us. He gives us reasons why anxiety has this unnecessary presence in our hearts and in our lives. And then he points us in a different direction. He tells us what, should we, what we should pursue instead with our energies, okay? So what, what I'm going to do this morning is follow the flow of his argument. I'm going to talk about what he names, uh, how he reasons with us, and what he calls us to pursue instead. Those are the three points. What he names, how he reasons, what he calls us to pursue instead. Okay, first, what he names. Has anybody ever tried, have you ever tried to define anxiety? Look, I'm talking to you as a pastor. I am not a counselor or a trained therapist or a doctor, and they might be able to define it with, give, give you something much clearer than I could. But I think that actually the anxiety is something that we kind of know it when we see it, but it can be very hard to explain what it is. Uh, what is that? Uh, we know from many studies, especially in recent years, that it's taking up more and more of a presence in our communities. Many, many more of us are suffering from anxiety, especially at younger ages than used to be. At least it seems that way. And what Jesus does, I think, helpfully, is he doesn't just talk about anxiety. He actually defines it for us. And he begins by explaining it as a concern about provision, okay? Concern about provision. What we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. He's talking about basic life necessities. Uh, We can be anxious for um, the luxuries of life, but what Jesus is addressing is just the things that we eat and the things that we drink, just very basic stuff. Uh, it's helpful to know that when Jesus is talking about clothing, clothing was seen in this, in the, with the people that he's talking to, clothing was seen as something um, that, like durable clothing that lasted for a long time could have been hard to come by. Come by. Uh, in fact, multiple sets of clothing was something that would have been considered a luxury that only very few would have actually had. So, so what Jesus is speaking to are just very basic, basic needs um, that, that we all have uh, to exist together. And that's why, uh, and so along with this concern about physical necessities, he's also going on to describe anxiety as a fundamental concern about the future. The verb tenses in this text are very, very important. Look at what he says. He says, what we will eat, what we will wear. And so it's this concern that even though I have what I need now, anxiety is a fear that there may come a time in my life when I won't. It's this 
imagining the worst about our future. This is, this is what the clinical psychologist was talking about when she talked about catastrophizing. Stop imagining the worst of our future. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. It's this feeling that I am not safe and there may come a time when I won't have what I need. It reminds me of something a counselor said some time ago, uh, and I've given you this quote before, but I just think it's probably helpful to say it again. He, uh, he said once that almost always in his experience with people, uh, when we imagine the future, we imagine a future that's void of grace. Now, let me ask you, are you familiar with that thought? You don't have to nod your heads, okay? Are you familiar with that thought when you think about the future? I'll tell you, I'm familiar with that thought. Are you familiar with that thought? The question that I want you to wrestle with is, why are you familiar with that thought? Um, Where is that coming from? Is it possible uh, that it comes from your past, maybe? It comes from your past, maybe you've been hurt or let down in a profound way, and you're going to make sure that that never happens to you again. Or maybe you saw something happen to somebody else. You watched it, and you saw how hard it was, and you decided that you were never going to let that happen to you turmoil in our world can create anxiety. And I would, I, would, uh, I would mention, I think, that we have a lot of turmoil in our world right now. Economic uncertainty creates anxiety. Political uncertainty creates anxiety. Family turmoil can create anxiety. Vocational uncertainty. All these things can can create. And you know that we could go on about this, right? Like, and, and I don't think that we need to, but the point is, is that fear comes to us from all kinds of places. And when it does, it can just be very hard to dislodge it. And so Jesus, listen, Jesus is not naming these things because he wants us to be more afraid. Jesus is naming these things because he wants to dislodge them from our hearts. He wants to to perform heart surgery on us. And so he names them in an effort to do heart surgery to dislodge them. And how does he do that? Well, he begins to offer reasons why worry takes up an unnecessary presence in our hearts and in our lives. And these reasons are beautiful. The first reason that he gives us is that your life is valuable. You hear that? Jesus said that your life, your life is valuable. That's what's behind verse 25. He says, life is so much more than having food to eat and clothes to wear. And that brings us to the question in verse 27 that he asks. He says, who has ever added a single hour to the length of his life by being anxious? Now, at this point, um, many will mention that there are there are several studies that would say that chronic or prolonged anxiety actually can, can shorten one's life. But I don't think that's actually the point that Jesus is making here. What he is saying is that your life is too valuable. 
It's too valuable for it to be reduced to the scope of the things that, that you're worried about. He has given us, and this is, this is something we have to reckon with, but he has given us the awesome responsibility of having a life to steward. And it's meant to be so much more than the things that we wear or the things that we consume. He says, your life is valuable. You need to see it that way. And not only is your life valuable, but he is telling you that you, you are valuable. You are valuable. Let me say it again. You are valuable. Think about who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a bunch of people that don't think they're valuable. Their country's been taken from them. They're they're in occupied land. They have real concerns about their future. And Jesus is saying, you are valuable. And he makes this case using two what we call greater than arguments, greater than. And he's actually uh, pointing at creation a couple of times to, to make the argument clear. The first argument that he uses involves birds. Uh, He says, look at these birds. They don't gather up and store for themselves what they need for their future because their heavenly father cares for them. And how much more valuable, uh, how much more important are you to your heavenly father than they are? Who are you valuable to? Who values you? Jesus is saying that you have a heavenly father that values you. And it's like he knows that it's hard for us to believe that. Because he makes another argument. And this time he's pointing to lilies on the, in a field. Now, <clears throat> you can imagine him at this point standing on top of a mountain or a big hill, wherever this was. And just uh, gesturing at these magnificent Galilean fields around him. Those fields are uh, just rife with beautiful wildflowers. And he's saying, if my heavenly father clothed the grass with such beauty, beauty that not even one of the great kings of Israel have even known, how much more will my heavenly father clothe you? Why? Because you are important to him. Now, some of you here are really tracking with his argument. Some of you here believe that, and, uh, and you're there. You're like, great, I'm there, I'm with you, Charles. Thank you for that. Thank you for reading the Bible to me. But for some of us, that's really hard to believe. I would, I would even venture to say it's just really, really hard to believe. Because we are talking about unearned affection. We're talking about a Heavenly Father's fundamental disposition toward his people in their sin. We're talking about something that he get like something that is uh, intuitive to his character that he just gives his people. That can be really hard to believe. I'll share with you. I shared this at leadership training earlier this week. It's a little, please just go with me here. Um, but I, uh, I've been meeting with a counselor about once a month and I told him, great guy. I told him, he's a little salty uh, too, so, but I told him, I can believe the gospel for the worst. Like, it's so, like, I can do that. I mean, the gospel that says that Jesus loves 
uh, the worst and covers our worst sins uh, with his mercy and his sacrifice on the cross. I can believe that. I can believe that the worst aren't beyond God's reach of redemption in Jesus Christ. I believe that. It is so hard to believe that for myself. And you know what he said? He said, but Charles, you are the worst, okay? <laughs> That's what he said. But this is, this is the idea that Jesus is actually calling us to believe not something, um, not something that we've earned, but something that's been given to us in the Heavenly Father's affection. Something that exists, that's true about his disposition toward you, that he looks at you with extreme value. And, and, and listen, if you're having a hard time believing that, let me point you to Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis chapter 3 is, is, in a lot of ways, it's just a very sad story. It's a story of where sin enters the world. And the course of the world is affected for, uh, from that day until this one. The course of humanity was affected. It's a story, it's this meta-narrative that the Bible proposes about the human condition. And yet, even in that story, one of the things you see is that even before, before the curse is announced and immediately after the curse is announced, what you see is God moving towards sinful people with great mercy. Because what happened? Adam and Eve disobeyed, and it said that their eyes were opened. And they saw each other in their nakedness for the first time. For the first time, that was actually a big deal. Because what? Because they felt shame. They felt, they felt shame that says, I'm not valuable. And so they were so aware of this that they decided they needed to sew some clothes together to cover them up. They were trying to hide themselves from each other. And then what did they do? They went and hid from God, right? And so what does, it, what does God do? God comes to them. God comes pursuing them with asking questions. Where are you? And then at the end, after all was said and done, this is so beautiful. After all was said and done, after the curse was announced, and the implications of this life that we live and the miseries of this life are are announced, what does God do? He looks at Adam and Eve, and he sees them in their fig leaves, and he makes them clothing. He clothed Adam and Eve. He is, he, the story begins with him pursuing them in their sin. And the story ends with him providing them basic physical necessities that they now need. I love this image of the clothes making God. The one who is attentive to the basic needs of Adam and Eve. There are a lot of implications about these, this clothing that he made for them. But this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that he, was, that he, that he looked at these fig leaves that were probably falling off of them at, the, at this point, and he just said, that, that's not going to do. That's not going to work for them. Let me make them something better. Listen, there are a lot of ways that we can seek out value in this life. Sometimes we'll find value through excellent work. Sometimes our bank accounts communicate value to us. Sometimes it's the praise of people. It's another form of currency that we can use. 
sometimes all those things might communicate some value to us. But one of the things that Jesus is saying to us is that there's one, there's one true value given to us that doesn't, doesn't ever go away. That can't be taken from us. And it's the affection of the Heavenly Father. And his movement toward us despite our sin. And we don't have to, we don't have to go uh, any further to see that than, than in the person who is speaking these words. Because Jesus said, I will go pursue them. God the Father looks at us in our sin and he says, I still love my people. And Jesus says, I will pursue them. And so he comes asking questions, where are you? And then what does he do? He doesn't leave until some of our most basic needs are provided for. See, the story of the cross is that he left this world, is the story of God's provision for one of our most basic needs. Not just in this life, but in the next one. Isaiah the prophet talks about a time when Jesus will clothe his people in his robes of righteousness. And when Jesus bears the weight of the cross of judgment, enduring a judgment that we all deserve so that he might clothe us with the robes of righteousness, he is telling you that he loves you so much that he meets our most basic needs in this life and in the next. And so that's the encouragement, that's the comfort of this passage. And I just want to ask you, can that penetrate your worries? That's what Jesus is trying to do. He is confronting the things that we are anxious about with the love of the Father. The only thing big enough that could dislodge it. That's the comfort. But then he gives us an exhortation. And I want to be quick about this. This is the exhortation. He, this is what he calls us to pursue instead. He ends with this profound redirection. And he talks about the things that we pursue. It's like either our, our anxiety drives us to pursue uh, things or something else does, right? So verse 32, he says, Your heavenly Father knows what your needs are. Even those who don't know God pursue these things. What do we pursue instead? Verse 33, but seek first. That means pursue or chase after the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added unto you. Well, what does it mean to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, if if you're asking that question, I would tell you it's a good question to ask. I would also encourage you to go back and read Matthew Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Because what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is that we belong to him. We We are then engrafted into his kingdom and he is our king. And we follow him with our lives. And he is laying out what our lives should look like when it exists uh, under, under, uh, under his reign. Earlier, earlier when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, also found in the Sermon on the Mount, what did we pray? We said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are asking for uh, God's heavenly rule to cover his world. That's what we want. That's what it means to live out, to pursue the kingdom, to begin to live as those who are following Jesus and his rule. And so he, he, he says that we are to be a generous people. 
because he is generous to us. He says that, that uh, we are to be a people of integrity because God is, God is a person of integrity. He, he, uh, and of course, he says that we entrust our, our worries to him with a, with a deep confidence that he is, he is not, the world is not actually decaying and won't be ruled by mosquitoes one day. It's actually a world that he is renewing. And we trust him with faith. And we labor to that goal as his people. That's what he's calling us to. It sounds like a life that becomes completely oriented toward showing Christ's rule by being anxious for, if I can put it that way, by being anxious for the good of those around us. And it, it, I want to be really careful how I say this, but it occurs to me that if we really are anxious for the good of those around us, if we are truly, if we're thinking about who I can be generous to, who, who, I can, who can I be praying for, who, who can I help, where can I do some good in the world, if we are truly anxious for those things, it, there's really not a lot of room for, uh, for anxiety left. David Brooks wrote a, a great book on this point. This is one of the many points that he made called The Second Mountain. Some of you have read this, I know. But, but one of the things he says is that a life that revolves around its own good is an inherently anxious life, but a life that matures into considering primarily the good of those around it can be a deeply satisfying life. It might be a life with less, but it's a rich life is what he says. And as those who belong to the community that God calls us into, this community is one that serves because we have been served so generously. That's the present that he calls us to. But what's the future? That present only makes sense if we have some sense of our future. Verb tenses. And all these things will be added unto you. That God's abundant provision is given to us now in this life and in the next one. That heaven comes. Did you see what Jesus did? He is sneaky sometimes. He is so subversive with us. He is teaching us how to imagine our futures. You know, maybe time traveling isn't so bad. He is teaching us what it means. What, he is teaching us what we can imagine with a grand imagination when we think about our future with him. I don't know what that looks like, but I know it's one you don't have to be afraid of. And I also feel fairly confident that there won't be mosquitoes in heaven, okay? They'll be our friends, maybe. Jesus is telling us that when you think about your future, you can rest, knowing that this inheritance he gives you, this inheritance he wins for you, is completely secure. Can you hear that? Can you believe it? Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to trust that. Trust that that's true. You say it's true, we read it's true, we tell each other it's true. Will you convince our souls that this is indeed true? 
And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.